Welcome to the Poets and Philosophers Podcast. I'm Abe. And I'm Sam. And we respect the great tradition. We're also brothers. Each week we'll take a topic or author in the great tradition and explore the ideas for their own sake and how Christians can benefit from them. If you're someone who loves philosophy, old books, ancient ideas, and God, follow this podcast and tell your friends about it. Today, we discuss James Emery White's book, A Mind for God. Only 99 pages long, but... This is one of those books that's worth reading at least once a year, I think. Sam may beg to differ because he's read some other books that have said, said similar things. And uh, so maybe we'll talk a little bit about that. Or maybe actually, I think maybe even next book that we'll review will be one of those books. Um, so in some ways, it's a manifesto for Christian thinkers. And I do think it's a wonderful book. So we're going to review this book. We'll review books on this podcast probably once a month. And we'll let you know what our next book is. So if you would like to read along with us through this month of reading the book that we have in mind, that would be really great. And uh, we could probably uh, talk about it on our Facebook page. If you've not already liked our Facebook page, we encourage you to do that as well. But let's talk about this book, Sam. Every book has a problem it's trying to solve. So in what problem is Dr. White trying to solve with this little book? I think he sees that there's a lot of Christians today who are, uh, they're following their emotions. They're not really using their intellects. They're not engaging with the ideas of uh, culture. I think he quotes John Stott. And I think John Stott says that uh, the Christian battle is a battle for minds. So yeah. he, he really wants Christians to be maybe not less emotional, but allow their emotions to follow from the intellect um, as they, they really should. And he, you know, he sees a lot, I think a lot of Christians looking at football and talking politics, being uh, you know, consumed with the news, and he wants people to engage culture and the problems that culture is presenting. He names four different I'm not sure if they're movements, they're, they're beliefs that are that are harmful to our our culture. So the first one he talks about is moral relativism, and then he talks about autonomous individualism. The third issue is narcissistic hedonism, and number four is reductive naturalism. And I'm not going to go into all of those, but just generally, he sees culture, the American culture. Um, this book was, I'm sure it was published in America. He sees that, that our culture is presenting problems to the church and we as a church are not addressing them. And if we don't do that, we're not going to have another generation of Christians because uh, they're not going to be able to justify why we believe what we believe. So he's really trying to help Christians to think about the importance of the mind and, and using the mind for for God. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, I'll just kind of summarize your four points that he's making here. So more relativism is just what's true for you is not true for me. Or, you know, if a culture wants to uh, practice life a certain way, well, that's just their way of doing it. It's who am I to judge? Autonomous individualism is just, um, you know, my rights and I get to do what I want to do in life so long as I don't hurt anybody else. Uh, narcissist hedonism is just a practice of unbridled pleasure um, to do whatever you want to do to make yourself feel good. 
And reductive naturalism is we're all just made a bunch of atoms and there's really no right, no wrong. That's just how things are. So those are the four movements that are affecting us. And you talked a little bit about um, Stott's quote there, but I think also uh, he quotes Churchill's quote about that the next empires will be empires of the mind. Now, he was writing and speaking a long time ago, and I think he is spot on how ideologies have just really taken over the day, and that's just that's just where we're at. Um, but on top of that, there's also this problem of low information. So he has several different anecdotes throughout this whole thing, which I really do appreciate them, and one of them I really liked. So he's talking about Oliver Stone, and Oliver Stone is this well-known uh, uh, producer or uh, director of some films like Natural Born Killers or Platoon and JFK. And as he was speaking at an American university, um, he said, look, uh, uh, films should not be an end all for what is true. You know, people have a responsibility to go read a book. <laughs> So he was saying that because his documentary JFK acted like it was a doc. It looked like a documentary. It was a faux documentary. And people were like, you can't do that because people are going to think this is actually what happened. And he's like, no, your responsibility is to go read a book. Well, here's the problem. Most people don't go read the book. And any sort of information we do cons uh, consume is actually not that great at all. In fact, uh, this book was written, I think, in 2006. But he gives a... Uh, an anecdote of the top Google searches from 2005. And what were they? Uh, I don't have them right next to me right now, but it, there was like Michael, oh yeah, Michael Jackson, uh, Angelina Jolie, Brad Pitt, American Idol, and Janet Jackson, and Xbox 360. And it's like here we have this wonderful search engine that gives us anything we want to look up. And what do people want to talk about? They want to talk about Xbox 360, uh, Brad Pitt. And I'm sure today this would be a little different as far as what we're talking about, but it, but it probably in the same realm of things. And so here's this problem that we have, that what we talk about um, is not worth while because um, it is so vapid and it is so given over to these four movements of just unbridled pleasure and living solely for oneself. And he wants us to call us to do something better with our time and with our thinking. And so his solution is to think Christianly. And that is uh, a type of thinking that we should probably discuss a little bit. So Sam, when he says we should think Christianly, what is that? Yeah. So like you're talking about these like top searches in Google, these are, a lot of them are, are you know, confessing Christians. They think that they are Christians, but what they care about is just the mundane, trivial things in life. It's not like they're compromising ethical uh, – they're not compromising their the, the ethics or the, the uh, morals that um, are in Scripture. They're just – they care about things that are, are trivial. So he thinks that Christian thought or thinking Christianly – is about pursuing God with our mind to genuinely be curious about the things that are and the things that God has has created. And this is not just, is your doctrine right? 
okay, so once your doctrine's right, you can go, you know, search for Xbox 360. And once your doctrine's right, you can go and look at Angelina Jolie or I forget what other, the other ones were. But it's, it's like, you know, as long as your doctrine's right, as what today you would think is you're thinking Christianly, then you can go off and pursue your the things that you actually care about. He's saying, no, it's about transforming the things that you care about and truly desiring God with your mind. And he says that uh, uh, thinking Christianly is a mind shaped by God's word, by God's spirit. And um, he also quotes Os Guinness saying that thinking Christianly is thinking by Christians about anything and everything in a consistently Christian way in a manner that is shaped, directed, and restrained by the truth of God's word and God's spirit. So thinking Christianly is, oh, is your doctrine right? Do you know the things? And then you put the Bible down and you go and search whatever you want. But it's desiring God earnestly, uh, not just emotionally, but intellectually. Yeah, I think those are great ways of thinking about what it means to think Christianly. Um, and it is to love God with all of your mind. If we're not doing that, um, that is something that we we need to be doing. And so when it comes to any sort of topic, when we think about politics, we cannot be partisan thinking, all right, whatever this particular party says, I'll toe this line. We have to always reflect thinking, all right, what does God say about this issue? Um, or when it comes to things like uh, how we raise our children, it's like, well, here's this one parenting guru on this side, and here's this one on this piece of social media. Well, no, no, we have to think about Christianly about how to raise our uh, children. Or what does it mean to um, what does it mean to be a productive person? <laughs> you know, um, we can read a lot of good productivity books, but at the end of the day, we always have to reflect upon. What does God think about us and our productivity, and um, how does He? What does He want us to focus on in those realm of the world? And so it is just this all-encompassing thing. You know, another quote he has is the uh, Abraham Kuyper thing, where he says, "There is not one realm of the entire world where Christ does not say mine." And so we think about, all right, how is this Christ's, and how can we think about it better? So. That's the project. That is the solution. But does he just tell us what the solution is? He tells us kind of how to get to that solution. So what does Dr. White tell us to do that, in order to cultivate our minds to think in this Christianly way? So what, 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 what prescription is there? Not just to think Christianly, but what prescription is there for us to do? Yeah, reading is fundamental. Reading, he, uh, I quote, reading is the foundation of intellectual development. So if we want to be Christians who, who think well and desire God intellectually, who are curious, we need to be people who think also that the culture is presenting these issues. And all of these issues have already surfaced in history. And if we just crack open some books and see how the ancients have responded to such uh, ideas, then we don't have to invent the wheel again to see how are we going to respond to this uh, narcissistic, narcissistic hedonism or this uh, you know, naturalism. I like a quote he has. He says, if every generation of Christians faces these ideas for the first time, 
the damage will be incalculable. So if we just open books and we read how how you know the ancients have responded to these modern issues that the church is facing, then we already have a good you know five arguments or a good three arguments against these. And I would suspect that I'm going to try to like name these these dangers for the church, these these movements, and then also some expressions in the past that have been dealt with before. So moral relativism, Plato responds to this, uh, and the person is uh, Thrasymachus, and he is a moral rel- relativist, and then he has Socrates respond to Thrasymachus's relativistic thinking. So when you say also, that we uh, could, Thrasymachus is more more relative, um, what part of what part of him would you say is a more relative? Yeah. So uh, at the beginning of the Plato's Republic, they talk about you know what is justice, and Thrasymachus says justice is whatever the strongest desire, you know, kind of the might make ri- might makes right, and he thinks that it's just relative. It's relative to whoever who is strong. And Socrates says, wait a second, if you think that might makes right, that what is just is whatever the strongest will, what happens when the strongest do something against themselves, that they contradict their own desire? And he kind of stops for a second, and then another sophist talks up and tries to make the argument better. But Socrates still questions that. So we today, we can crack open Plato's Republic, which is quite rare today we could crack open the book and say how can we respond to you know my friend my friend alex my friend uh joseph who is in the university or my friend who who hasn't um been raised in a christian home and who who doesn't have these um these same values or you know uh these same um the same worldview that i have how do i actually talk to him when our foundation is not the bible because he's not really sure if the bible is actually the word of god well we can use worldly wisdom and say hey this is this is an issue with your worldview it's internally inconsistent right um okay so then we could talk about autonomous individualism or narcissistic hedonism we could go to epicurus and epicurus thought that what is right is to pursue pleasure if you pursue pleasure, that is what is right. Or uh, reduction, uh, reductive naturalism. You could talk about uh, Democritus, and I haven't studied too much of him, but I know that he thought that you really don't have free will; that we're just made up of a bunch of matter, and we are slaves to just chaos, whatever created us. And and Plato responds to him actually in uh, Plato. Well, it's Plato's dialogue. Yeah, Socrates in in the book. Uh, Socrates didn't write anything himself. Plato, uh, Plato did later on, which we think he was a student of his. And um, it's in his book, I think, the Phaedo. And he's explaining. No, it's actually not. I forget which which play it's in, but he's trying to say that hey, why am I in prison? Is it because my bones and my flesh are keeping me in prison, or is it because my will has said I will sit here? And Anyway, so he's responding to Democritus. So we can use ancient wisdom, which has triumphed over bad ideas, false ideas, and we, we, can, uh, we can respond to our culture today um, using their wisdom. So 
when it comes to how do we think Christianly, we read. It's the foundation of uh, of Christian thought, especially you know the Bible, um, but also outside of the Bible. Yeah, I uh, I love his his uh, I forget which chapter it is. It is chapter three, titled "The Library as Armory," and he has this old quote saying a monastery without a library is like a castle without an armory. And I would say that we could translate that even today to where a home without a library is like a castle without an armory. That if we don't have books on our shelves, um, good books on our shelves, that we are reading on a consistent basis, um, we are neglecting to develop our mind in that way to uh, think better about the world. Because when you read a book, um, it's not just for simple pleasure, but you are actually stepping into a world that is very unfamiliar to you. And when you're stepping into that world, you're confronted with all of these different ideas that probably make you feel pretty uncomfortable. But as you begin to navigate these different worlds, you begin to go, oh, this world could answer this world in this way. And if you read some of the ancient Christian writers even, they are dealing with topics that are extremely relevant to today. Something like uh, Justin Martyr's books on uh, defending the Christian faith or uh, other writers who are fighting against uh, Gnosticism. Um, there's a lot that they have to offer for us even there as we, as we think about these things. And so the, the how do we cultivate our mind to think Christianly is to, to think and to read widely, but not just to read uncritically about what we read, but to apply all of that or to um, measure that up to what Scripture says about our life. And so that is one way we, we do that, is to cultivate um, our minds to think Christ, Christianly in that way. It requires a lot of reading. Um, so that requires a lot of discipline for us to do on a consistent basis. So um, he has a chapter called Chapter 6, called The Rule for the Mind, which this idea of rule was an ancient idea of what r- rule just means like your practice. Um, so the practice of, of the mind. So Sam... What are those practices that we should have to think, um, to think Christianly? What practices does he re- just just other than just simply reading? But um, go more specific. Yeah, uh, I, he he takes a lot of Susan Bowers, uh, what's it called? Um, engage uh, well and well educated, the well educated mind. I think it's called. I'm trying to look on my bookshelf for it right now, but. Um, she suggests, uh, Susan White, I think she suggests a few different things. And I think that, uh, James Henry White kind of just lists them. So first read in the morning and that's better than reading in the evening. Start small when you read, uh, don't try to read, you know, three chapters of one book, but read, you know, a, a paragraph or a few paragraphs or one chapter also read four times a week. Don't check your email before you read. Then also guard the time of your reading. Make sure it's not just getting delegated or, or uh, it's not me- being moved around. Tell people you have an appointment at that time and make sure you you make sure you're reading. Also, uh, I like he had a, he had a story about engaging with culture. There was a priest he knew that deleted their uh, deleted his. A New York Times subscription and the reason why the priest did this is because 
he thought the news was just full of negativity and like uh, just negative stories. And James Emery Wright is pretty critical. He, he thinks that if we want to have a good rule, if, if we want to be disciplined in how we're engaging with ideas, we not only need to read well, but we have to engage with culture and we have to see what people are thinking today. And I do think that Christians today need to have a news outlet that they scan in in a disciplined way. They're not just reading any kind of heading, but they're seeing what is really concerning people. I I think Karl Barth said we need to have the Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other, but always have the Bible interpret the newspaper. And that's, I think, how we need to be as Christians today. We need to have some kind of curated form of news where it's the it's the biggest headings, or if it's local, you know, I, I think that we need to be informed locally, know what's on people's minds, and then think critically about how Scripture addresses it, how a, a different culture would address this. And uh, those are, I think, some good disciplines we should adopt as uh, as Christian thinkers. And, and that's something definitely right now I'm trying to get better at. So I actually just yesterday, I subscribed to do two uh, curated email, uh, I guess, news outlets. And before that, I have not got on, on Fox News, CNN, MSNBC. I haven't been really in, in the know with politics. So I'm trying to do better about that. Yeah, I have the opposite problem. Um, I, I do too much news reading and, and listening um and I have to, I don't stop to reflect more critically about it. But uh, yeah, I think the whole reading the news is, is, is helpful um, because the part I would say, it kind of deals with like monasteries in general, that there's a part of us that would love to, you know, just go have a nice little shed out in the middle of nowhere and have a bookshelf full of books and just read and go fishing and eat and just live an enjoyable life that way. Um, but that's not that's not what we're supposed to be as Christians, and neither are we supposed to be political junkies that are just like in the news, like just watching it all the time, and just that's just what you know. We just we love the game, and you know we're just political junkies. We don't need to be doing that. We need to have this balance of reading, but then reflecting in a helpful way. And uh, I need to do better about just curating my news as far as. Uh, reading enough, but not too much. So that way I'm not just getting carried away with it, uh, as well. Um, but also I really think that we have to read it as you were saying, uh, intelligently, we have to do it in a, in a, in a, in a helpful way, a reflective way. He gives this anecdote about, um, whenever Princess Diana died, um, that it was, it was an awful thing. And it was, you know, it was, it happened suddenly it was a car accident and it was just like, we have lost somebody that everybody she was a, a famous figure. And um, in this ABC News story, Andrew Morton said that Diana's death was one of the most awful tragedies of the late 20th century, if not the greatest. In her death, something inside us has died. People are grieving for lost hopes, lost dreams, lost ambitions. Now, I am part curmudgeon, so I can say these things. But come on, man. Like, this guy, uh, Dr. White goes on to say, look, man, the Vietnam War, Chernobyl, 
Tiananmen Square, the this explosion of the Challenger space shuttle, and also the fact that Mother Teresa died that very same day as uh, Princess Diana. Like, that... It, it's hard to... It's, it's, it does feel a little weird to say that um, her death, um, it as grief as it was, but it, it's nothing compared to the tragedies of war, you know, or all the other atrocities that happened in the 20th century. And so what happens is when we're reading the news, you know, as they say with every election, this is the most important election that there is. It's like, no, it's not. <laughs> I mean, it is because this is the one that's currently happening. But in the grand scheme of things, like we're never going to be able to know that. And so we have to temper our emotional response to reading the news, and but to also read it. So that way we can know these things and um, be able to talk to others. Because most people, what they want to talk about is simply just what's happening on the news. And if you do know that, you can help steer them to say a higher conversation about the things that are good, true, and beautiful, which is always worthwhile doing. So, And I, I think oh, that we're yeah. going to talk... Uh, I don't know when. I, I remember we, we have our little our schedule for next episodes, but I think we're going to be talking about uh, Soren Kierkegaard's um, The Present Age and how he talks about how the news, which he was talking about the newspaper, the, the media, um, he or the press uh, mainly, how they have vital information right next to trivial. And what the news does is it levels everything. And there's no more meaningful differences between, you know, Princess Diana's death and Mother Teresa's death. It, it will, um, it will level everything. And again, everything in life is not equally significant. We need to realize that. And as Christians, we need to redeem news. We need to redeem the time and focus on those things that are vitally important. So. Just generally, the news is going to be leveling. It's going to add trivial info information right next to vital. So we have to learn how to ascertain what is actually significant to, to me, but also to the church. Yeah, I, those are good thoughts. And um, I think what balances those uh, those things, too, is not only just reading the news reflectively, but as we were talking about earlier, that as you read these old books— whether it's histories or philosophies or just literature, um, and then you read something about today, you can see parallels. And you can see, um, especially with history, just how awful people had it back in the day. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we think COVID is this horrible thing. And in many ways, because it, it definitely can be for many people. But, you know, World War One, II, uh, the Black Plague, um, influenza, or just the multiplicity of diseases that we had to face. There's there's really no comparison to what what COVID brings us. And it doesn't mean just say you know oh just uh, get over yourself. I'm not trying to say that, but it helps to say oh okay, you know my ancestors, the people before me, they dealt with these things as well, and we can learn from them as far as how they dealt with these challenges and move forward. Or you're reading some different philosophies that can help you think clearer about these particular ideas. Or, you know, the Bible itself gives us good perspective on all of these things. And so it's all kind of wrapping up together as far as we need to think 
Christianly. Yeah, and I, I would also add uh, Albert Camus. He wrote a book called The Plague, and it's about a, a uh, yes, some kind of plague that goes through, I forget if it was Lithuania, somewhere in Europe, and everyone uh, hides themselves, you know, they quarantine, uh, trying to rebel against death because they don't want to die, and then the f- the the plague leaves. Well, after the plague leaves, everyone gets back out of their homes and they you know go about life as quote unquote normal. And there's a shooting in the gas station, and people die at random reasons. And it's really the idea that Albert Camus is trying to communicate that life is going to end in death, and sometimes we be- we become symptomatic. Sometimes we don't, and we don't get a choice, or you know, we don't get a uh, a warning. But life itself is uncertain, and you know, COVID nineteen. I'm not sure if it's added uncertainty. Maybe it's just revealed that life is uncertain, and I think that that's what it has. So, I mean, just reading that book, we could reorient ourselves to the significance of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that would be a good work that, for anyone to read um, during this pandemic. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think one of the things, too, what we have to kind of talk about is um, his call to be like C.S. Lewis as a person who has done this very well. Um, so one of the things that made C.S. Lewis unique in his approach and could surprise us even that C.S. Lewis did not have a formal seminary education. He had a formal education because he taught classics at the collegiate level. Um, But he did not have a formal uh, seminary education. But if if you're going to say, all right, who do preachers quote the most eventually and you most likely maybe the first one c.s lewis why because he had these wonderful insights because he read he he knew things very well and he thought a lot his books are wonderful and deep reads on humanity on christianity uh his in fact his book on miracles is very hard to understand because he is grappling with very difficult ideas he's going after um David Hume and a few other naturalists about uh, the, the topic of miracles. And he can do that because he thought Christianly. And um, most people uh, respect C.S. Lewis's thoughts on the particular topic in, because he was just good at it. And uh, there's a lot of things in his life and his even just his normal attitude, I think, um, Dr. White said that the places that keep the seminaries that keep his archives or keep his, his uh, uh, books and stuff, they would not admit him as a student because he smoked the pipe and he drank and he, uh, I guess his mouth got away from him, um, which I'm not saying we should be like that, but here is somebody who um, was able to reach a wide audience without having those things some of us would say are, are, are necessary to be a good Christian uh, thinker. Um, no, he just, he read and uh, he studied and he, he wrote. And those are, are wonderful things for us for us to do as well. Yeah, let me, uh, so C.S. Lewis wrote a book. Uh, he wrote an article actually, an essay on, it's called On Reading Old Books. And this is what he says, every age has its outlook. 
it is especially it is especially good at seeing certain truths and especially liable to make certain mistakes we all therefore need books that will correct the characteristic mistakes of our own period and that's exactly what cs lewis did it, it helped him uh think in in the university of oxford as well as cambridge and that is what he uh suggests for uh, christians as well to read other books that don't make the mistakes our culture is making but also they perhaps make mistakes it makes mistakes that our culture is not doing so that we can uh, appreciate that as well one of the things we should think about too is that this book was written in 2006 right so there's obviously going to be some serious changes because it is 2021 now um, so, um, as we're thinking about some things here, um, what has changed since this book has been published? Are there new challenges or since there's some things in this book that he says are pretty significant, but as of right now, they're not very significant. So what are some things that have changed since this book has been published? The, the main thing that I think of, which again, I am just now becoming more, um, knowledgeable of our culture and listening to news, being more informed. So that's an area that I'm trying to improve on. But the main thing with this transgender movement, I he addresses homosexuality in his book. Um, but with transgender, n thinking that gender is assigned rather than it's some innate quality in biology, and um, we as a we as a, a, a Christian community, we need to think th think about. The transgender issue, also homosexuality, you know, uh, the Supreme Court case is now allowing um, is now allowing people of same sex to get married. They're also allowing uh, transgender uh, people to be assigned differently than their biological gender, I guess. Um, anyways, we need to we need to grasp these issues and think through scripture with them, but also uh, plunder plunder the the ancients and see what they have to say about this issue. But that, that's just one issue that I think is different today than maybe when he wrote in. Do you say two thousand six? Yeah, two thousand six. Yeah, I think it's a it's a it's a huge issue. This idea of identity and the metaphysics of one's identity has really changed in a lot of in a lot of ways, and it is definitely worth pursuing and thinking about. Um, because, you know, you could read a few passages in scripture that do condemn the practice of, um, homosexuality. Uh, however, I think that there is a metaphysical underpinning that the Bible teaches us indirectly about ourselves as human beings that I think also, uh, dismantles the claims of transgenderism is something that is, uh, that is real. Um, so I think that that's, that's worth talking about. I think one of the things that was surprising with me was that, um, he has a quote about, um, I think it's Alan Bloom, even in the sixties, that one of the things you can assume that any professor says is that there's no such thing as truth. And I think that's changing. Um, maybe the word truth is not the word people would use to describe it, but they do things think that are, that are true. And they believe those things with, with a vengeance, I mean, with, uh, with great passion. That if you were to say some things that are, that are contrary to one's worldview, they're not going to say, well, that's true for you, but it's, it's uh, not true for me. Or that is, okay, that, 
okay, you can disagree, but this is what I'm going to believe. Most people, when it comes to you know identity politics in particular, they are very much, there is one way to look at it, and if you look at it the, the different way, you are in the wrong, and you need to be ostracized and put outside of our community. And so truth, in a sense, has really come back with a vengeance as far as how people think about the world. And for us as Christians, we need to reflect on this. All right, people are really into... Um, really into um, this. I So yeah, it's, you call it social justice, but I'm just saying as a, as a macro idea or bigger than just simply social justice, they're, they're into this uh, way of thinking about things that there's, there is this one way of thinking about it. And if you don't think this way, you're going to commit a terrible mistake. So for instance, you know, to, to take your point, um, uh, oh, what? I'm not, not talking, but uh, JK Rowling, there we go. They had those two initials. So J.K. Rowling on Twitter at one point um, retweeted this woman who lost her job because she said women are women and men are men. And she uh, J.K. Rowling retweeted this. And by retweeting this, she was eventually called, by her own community, she was called a TERF, which is called a trans, no, yeah, trans-exclusionary radical feminist. That's that's what they called her. They called her a TERF. In other words, she's no longer one of us because she said this. Whereas if you you know spend some time thinking through the, the Harry Potter books and how she's just kind of going, oh, well, so-and-so is this identity now, and so-and-so is this identity now. It's kind of like backfilling some of this. Maybe some of it's true in her mind. Maybe it wasn't, or she's just doing it for the sake of doing it. I don't know. But uh, that sort of ostracization, this religious excommunication by her quote-unquote community is something that wouldn't have happened a few years ago or a couple of decades ago. It would have been, well, you know, she can think her way and I'm going to think my way in a more liberal perspective, but it's really becoming, there's a religious tinge to these conversations about identity politics that is something that has definitely changed that we have to think through as Christians to say, okay, how do we take this fervor over um, these ideas and to redirect them in a way that leads people to think more clearly about how people actually are versus, you know, one day I want to wake up and be really whatever I want to be. I mean, there's stories all the time you see of people being uh, not just human beings, but I'm a dog now or I'm a cat um, and it's, you know, just, just these wild things that we, we, we do have to think about. And so um, part of us could just say, well, that's just wrong and move on. But if we want to help protect really particularly our children who can be manipulated much easier about these ideas, um, we have to think deeper about them and to bring in God and his truth to these sort of things. So if you're really interested in this thing, I would encourage you to grab the book, a mind for God. I really did enjoy this book and I've read it probably three or four or five times now. But in the back of the book, there's also something really helpful for you. And I think I'm going to start doing more of this. But he has three different book lists in the back of the book for you to read through. So the first book one is just 10 books to read. I forget what the second book is. Yeah, 25 is the second book, the second list. And the third list, I believe, is like 150 books to read. And that's like a life, he says, you know, think of it as a lifetime idea of reading all of these books. 
And he's got a great list. And I think it's a great starting point. You may want to change it after a while, but even reading those first 10 books, I think is going to be very helpful. I would say read the uh, 150 books because they go back to reading the classical tradition, starting with the Epic of Gilgamesh. Um, and the last one is uh, Tony Morris's Tony Morris Beloved. So going through all of that, I think is a, a good uh, enterprise and exercise, and that is a great way to start this whole thing. Next time, we're going to, or not next time, but the next uh, book review we're going to do is uh, Leisure, The Basis of Culture by Joseph Piper. It'll pro- we'll probably do a podcast a month from now to review this book. So Leisure, The Basis of Culture by Joseph Piper. If you're wanting to read this book with us as we're reading this the, the next month, uh, be sure to do that. And uh, we'll be posting on social media Uh, our Facebook and our Instagram pages about this book as far as reminding people this is what we're going to be doing. And if you have questions or or want to engage in some other sort of way, just please let us know. We want to thank you so much for watching this. uh, (laughs) We want to thank you so much for listening to this uh, podcast, and uh, we will see you guys in the next one.